electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Dan Nathan, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, and Karen Feinerman. Tonight on Fast, one of the hottest IPOs of the year falling in its first day of trading. We're breaking down the action in Robinhood with one of the company's first investors, Tim Draper. His take on the blockbuster debut. Plus, stocks touching all-time highs today despite a bomb of a GDP print. We'll dive into how our traders are playing this record rally. And later, a streaming smackdown. Hollywood A-lister Scarlett Johansson suing Disney over the release of Black Widow. Why the fallout could be a game changer for the entire streaming space. We start off with an earnings alert on Amazon. That stock is sinking in the after hours after reporting results. Conference calls kicking off in just uh, about 30 minutes from now. Let's get straight to Deidre Bosa, who's got the details. Deidre. So, Melissa, it's really that top line miss and its revenue guidance for the third quarter that has that stock sinking in the after hours. I also just got off the phone with Amazon CFO Brian Olsalski for a few more details on the quarter. He said that that step down in growth we saw this quarter is likely to persist for the next few quarters as they lap a high period of growth. Of course, last year during the pandemic, he said that once we lapped growth on May 15th, See the business growing mid-teens percentage. Part of that is the lapping and the mobility of customers in the U.S. and Europe. That is people getting out more. He also said that they are still aiming to return to the office in September and Amazon will not be mandating vaccines. So this is a bit of a departure from what we've heard from the other tech giants. But keep in mind that Amazon is the second largest private employer in the United States. So a vaccine mandate from the company would be a much bigger deal, perhaps also trickier. He said that wages are one of the bigger elements of inflation in the business right now. Um, Advertising business, just want to call out as well, because that grew 73 percent this quarter. And Osovsky told me that the step up was due to demand bouncing back, sort of like we saw at Google, Facebook, Twitter, Snap. Um, The call, as you said, Melissa, kicks off in about 30 minutes. This is the first quarter with Andy Jassy at the helm. Bezos was never on this call for years. We will see if Andy Jassy takes a different tact and if we'll hear from him. Back to you. Uh, but just to be clear, Deidre, this is uh, the last quarter under which Bezos was the CEO. This is Bezos's quarter, even though Jassy is now at the helm. That's a very good point. He Exactly. He just took over Jassy at the beginning of July when Bezos went to space. So this is a tough quarter maybe for Jassy to talk about. This is the first revenue miss since 2018. But going forward, it would be great to hear how he plans to sort of tackle this more difficult period of comps, especially given the pandemic last year. Good time to retire. (laughs) Deidre Bosa, thank you. Keep us posted. Uh, Deidre Bosa on Amazon. Um, Guy Dami, let's get your your first take on, on Amazon. These are questions we had for all of the tech giants going into this particular quarter. How is it going to deal with very tough comparisons? A lot of similarities here point that Karen's been bringing up a number mm-hmm. of times, the setup in earnings was not great, and she's spot on here. I mean, Amazon three days ago was trading 37.70-ish. Look at where it is now. I looked at this quarter and said, wow, 23% beat on EPS. All right, revenue miss. I get it. Margins have got to be better. At least margins should have improved. And margins came in in line. And then I called Dan. I said, Dan, what's the deal? He goes, it's probably the product mix. And he's spot on. And then this guide, which I'm sure all three 
of the, you know, the guys and gals can talk about the guide is just horrible. So the question now is, where do you get back into the stock? Well, the last two quarters had big run-ups, 35.50, failed both times, traded one time down to 2,900. I don't think we're going to get there this time, but there's probably further room to the downside in this name, despite the move in the after hours. Yeah, and the question surrounding growth, I mean, let's be clear, Amazon still has amazing growth, Dan. But the question is, at the price which it's pr- it, it is right now, is that growth priced in? And is it priced in for a few quarters ahead of a slowdown in that growth rate? Well, maybe not where it was just the other day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, very near all-time highs. The stock in early July broke out above that 35.50 level, and it just kept on going. It's running away breakout. So to Guy and Karen's point that she's been making, it's just the expectations were really high. I guess you got to go back and look at 2020. This is a company whose sales grew 38% in 2020, okay? So that's why those comps are really difficult. The CFO just told you they're seeing this deceleration. I think it said somewhere in mid-teens. Is that, is that what Debo just said? I think the stock will figure it out. I think investors will be somewhere, you know, happy towards those levels that Guy just said. It's down 7% in the aftermarket. That is a massive move for a $1.8 trillion market cap company. But look at that chart right there. You look at that consolidation. I think a lot of investors, and the reason for the year-to-date underperformance by Amazon is that smart investors were already pricing this in. They realized that the comps were going to be amazingly difficult. So to me, I don't think there's any big problem. And I think there's probably an opportunity to buy this thing if you get back towards those levels from a couple months ago that the stock could run 20% from. So, you know, somewhere in that range that guy just mentioned. Yeah, maybe that consolidation was, in fact, waiting for that guidance um, when we're lapping very tough pandemic comparisons. Karen, um, what did you make of the quarter? So uh, much of what the guy said, I thought actually the guidance, which was lighter than the street was hoping, that doesn't really bother me. I mean, we've seen them be conservative with guidance many, many times. It was more, I, I want to get at the margin question, um, which Dan and Guy bro- both brought up. Um, that I want to see what, what really went on there. I know there were maybe some additional expenses. The free cash flow looked a little odd to me. I don't, I don't know if that's just noise around additional accounts uh, receivable and uh, lower accounts. I'm not exactly sure what happened there. I want to see that. Um, I, I don't know that the story is very different at all here. The one part of the story that was the two parts actually that were good uh, were AWS. That was some very nice growth. There was a, a good beat there and uh, advertising, which is a smaller part. But it doesn't materially change the story to me. It does actually make me think on a more macro about uh, where we are in the pandemic and the reopen. Right. Is this a change of behavior? Is this, you know, is this a permanent change of behavior? I know we'll get to Pinterest, but that also speaks to that same point. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see Amazon clearly will trade down tomorrow. At some point, I'm going to look to buy more. But what are the other, you know, the um, are we the, the reopen trades, something like a Peloton? Um, is that going to be under pressure if this is really happening? Yeah, and not only did the engines of growth, AWS as well as advertising, um, the sales growth there not only beat consensus but also showed a sequential acceleration, Tim, for the second straight quarter. So that's that's important. I mean, those are the areas that investors are invested in Amazon for, not necessarily Whole Foods. All that's nice. Um, but, but how do you interpret this quarter with where the stock is? Well, I... I think a stock that ran 15 percent or so, even though it's been somewhat sideways and and actually down slightly on a three month basis, um, tells you a little bit on the price action. But but yeah, look at this on a two year basis. And 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 as I think 
some of us are saying. In fact, I think Dan sounds um, surprisingly um, enlightened on this. I don't mean enlightened. He says a lot of enlightened things. I mean, he's, he's actually saying, you know, the sky's not falling here. I agree with that. I mean, if you look and we were, we were doing a two year stack review on Facebook yesterday. Let's do it on Amazon. We're about, hey, like that third quarter, we're about to go into our second uh, COVID comp. Uh, for Amazon, and it's not going to be pretty, but the operating income is going to be up 75 to 80 percent year over year. AWS up 45 percent. Those ad services and other up 88 percent. So um, I think actually Amazon is growing into the valuation. I think Amazon can pull some of the levers. Remember also the AWS wasn't really the disappointment here, but in the past that's really the place people have, have been most focused. So no, if you're Amazon, you can't miss the revenue line, especially after you run. But but I, I, I think these are great, great times to be Amazon. It's not getting worse for them. It's getting better. All right. Pause on Amazon here. We've got breaking news on Procter & Gamble. Sarah Eisen's got the latest. Sarah. Announcing a new CEO, Procter & Gamble, the consumer packaged goods giant, uh, says that John Moeller, who's the longtime CFO of P&G, recently the vice chairman of P&G, will become the CEO as of November 1st. David Taylor, the current CEO, will stay on as executive chairman. Uh, this is considered a pretty seamless transition. The two of them have been aligned for a long time. Moeller has been at the company at P&G since 1988. Uh, he was CFO for 12 years. And then more recently, he was elevated to a bigger position where he oversaw all of emerging markets. He's been part of all the transitions at P&G, including the latest one, which has totally restructured the business and streamlined it, which has actually set up P&G for success. And it has been outperforming its, peer, its competition and taking market share. Uh, so Moeller is kind of a natural fit to take this. If you were paying attention, if you're an investor, you won't be so surprised, perhaps a little surprised on the timing. David Taylor's been the CEO for six years, but he did what he set out to do, which is he restructured this company and, and set it up for success. And so it is a good time to step out on top at a time where P&G, as I said, is growing market share and does remember after they, they had that that Nelson Peltz fight where he finally joined the board, there was a lot of criticism about the matrix structure. They totally reorganized that and it has really helped them outgrow the category. P&G's underperformed the market lately, Melissa, but that really has to do with the fact that it's a consumer staple mm -hmm. and it's lapping tough COVID comparisons. It's also dealing with inflation. The company reports earnings tomorrow morning. So this is coming at a time, obviously, right before then, where they can get on with investors and talk to them about it. But, but I would assume that investors and analysts would be happy about this news because Moeller is no stranger at all to that community and has been well-liked for a long time. It also continues PNG's longtime tradition of appointing from within, not having an outsider coming in and, and run this business. They usually stay pretty close to home in Cincinnati. And as I mentioned, Moeller's been there for a very long time. All right. Sarah, thank you. Sarah Eisen with the latest on Procter & Gamble. Let's get back to Amazon, whose shares are trading down by about 7 percent after hours. Um, bring in Fast Money friend Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Gene, great to have you with us. Um, a lot is being made. A lot of the stock reaction is on the back of a perceived sales miss. You make a very interesting point in terms of what this miss actually is. It sounds like you think it's more of a Wall Street analyst miss as opposed to a company miss. Right. We should have listened to their guidance. They hit it right in the middle. And it implies if we take that learning and apply it to the September quarter, they'll grow at 18 percent. That's compared to 27 percent in the most recent quarter. That means that they guided down by 8 percent. So just kind of a level set there when we talk about these difficult comps. They just got it down by 8 percent. And why I think that that's an important starting point to your entire conversation here 
is that we need to think about what the arc of growth is for next year. The street's currently looking for 19% before this report tonight, 19% revenue growth. But if you start to uh, take Tim's uh, play into action, which is looking at the stack in the back half of 2020 or 2019, and compare that to the first couple quarters of 2022, that two-year stack, effectively, you're probably going to get estimates coming down around 15%. So maybe as a starting principle here, I would say investors kind of get comfortable with Amazon growing at 15% next year. And uh, I would uh, like to just kind of continue the thought and on, on, on terms of the guidance and what this all means together. There's a, a bigger question uh, at play here, and you've been touching on it around profitability. There's the comp question that has circled, uh, Melissa, as you've said, every tech company this reporting season, but the margin is a really big deal. Right now, Amazon doesn't have tech-like margins. It's funny because we criticize Tesla for not having tech-like margins. Amazon's operating margins tend to be between 6 and 8%. Apple and Google more recently were 30%. If you look at what Facebook was at, 40%. And so I think that there is a bigger question for Jassy here is, uh, what are you going to do to uh, show some margin improvements in the years to come? Hey, hey, Gene, do you think this is a deliberate reset on Jazzy's first quarter as the company CEO? I think it played into it, uh, that 8% guide down. If we look at typical guide downs, they do guide down in uh, a half of the occasions. So it's not, it is uh, half the time that that happens. But usually the guide downs are more at the 3 to 5% level. This is at 8%. So I suspect uh, he probably influenced some of that. I can say if I ever had the honor of having his job, I absolutely would do it. I probably would have guided 15% below the street to make myself look good for the next few quarters. Uh, but I think that that played into it. Hey, Gene. I'm sorry. Hey, Gene, it's, it's Tim. How about AWS versus the core e-commerce business? It, you know, and we talked a little bit about ad revenues, et cetera. But where should we be focused? Because at times it was really all about AWS growth. Um, that did not look terribly disappointing. Um, the comps are tough there, too. Where are you focused? I'm focused on, uh, I guess, uh, curtain number two here, which would just be around efficiencies like we talked about is that the core e-commerce business slowed to 13% unit growth. It had been growing in the 40 to 50% range in the previous quarters. So big slowdown there. As you said, AWS has been rock solid. It's still relatively small, 10, 12% of overall revenue. But one thing that impacts all of the revenue is uh, around margin. And I think that uh, an area that I hope they talk about is automation. They have, Amazon has 1.2 million employees. The majority of those are in logistics. And ultimately, uh, I think if you fast forward this five years from now, I would like to hear the company adopt uh, a position about, uh, you know, putting people first, but also finding ways to, to, to greater automate the business. It is a massive operation that is ripe for uh, automation. Gene, always great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Gene Munster. Um, let's trade Amazon. Let's trade Amazon in the context of what we've gotten so far. Basically, we have the entire big tech complex having reported um, Tim Seymour, how do, I, how do we digest this? There have been th- basically nits to pick in every earnings report except for maybe Alphabet. Well, look, Amazon came into this under-owned and under-loved. It's going to come out of this even more so. I, 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 you know, I look at the underperformance to the group, and that gets me excited as an investor. I, like, I've never ever been terribly comfortable with their valuation. 
But I'm extremely comfortable with the ability that they can uh, pull levers, become more profitable, again, increased operating income. And I think their subscription services uh, and Gene talked about where they can become a much more efficient company. But from a trading perspective, look, this is a company that that of that five um, is not, you know, is not in the top echelon. And that's something you want to own as an investor, isn't it? Yeah. Guy? It's interesting. The last two quarters for Amazon were extraordinary, I think, by any stretch. And both times... The stock traded up initially, then a week, week and a half later, was significantly lower. This quarter was nowhere near the last two quarters. And, oh, by the way, the guide was disappointing. So you have to ask yourself, if the last two quarters had sold off in a meaningful way, what happens now? I think Tim makes a good point. I mean, maybe we're sort of finding some equilibrium, but you got to believe there's still some downside room given what we saw the last two quarters. All right, 14 minutes till that conference call kicks off. We'll keep you posted. We meantime, we've got a news alert on Disney. Let's get to Julia Borson with the details there. Julia. So, Melissa, Scarlett Johansson is suing Disney, alleging her contract for Black Widow, the Marvel film, was breached when Disney simultaneously released the film in theaters and on Disney+. Plus. So she says she was guaranteed an exclusive theatrical release and her salary was based on box office performance. The Wall Street Journal estimating that the film's simultaneous release on the two platforms could cost Johansson some $50 million. Now, Disney just responding in a statement telling us, quote, there is no merit whatsoever to this filing. The lawsuit is especially sad and distressing and is callous disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Disney has fully complied with Ms. Johansson's contract. And furthermore, the release of Black Widow on Disney Plus with Premier Access has significantly enhanced her ability to earn additional compensation on top of the $20 million she has received to date. Now, the film grossed about $80 million at the U.S. box office and another $78 million overseas, plus $60 million from home purchases opening weekend. But the box office then fell 68% in its second weekend. That is the biggest ever first to second week drop for a Marvel movie. Now, it could be because COVID discouraged audiences from going out to theaters or perhaps the at-home option cannibalized the box office. Now, how this all plays out now could have long-lasting implications for how studios compensate talent, perhaps with more pay tied to streaming revenue or just simply pay up front. Melissa? If talent, Julia, is compensated um, more in line with streaming, in other words, they get a big, bigger cut of the streaming revenues, then does that make that whole notion of, of a simultaneous release or an earlier streaming release much less profitable? Not necessarily. And we also have to remember that each of the studios is basically doing this totally differently. So you have Universal, which is putting its films in theaters for a minimum of a 17-day or three-weekend exclusive window. So Universal might say, and they probably have said, that they would tie box office back end, that's basically the box office bonuses that um, content creators and movie stars get, they would tie that to the time in theaters and then tie the bonuses after that to the number of sales that they can do in terms of the number of people who decide to pay for downloads. Disney is also doing paid downloads. So that's pretty clear. You could give give talent a percentage of that. But remember, you have HBO Max, which for this year, at least, is giving the movies away for free on HBO Max. So you can't give a percentage of streaming subscriber revenue, or maybe you could, but it would be complicated. But each of these studios is doing things differently. They know they need the movie stars. But maybe, Melissa, the, the day and age of huge box office back end, maybe, maybe that day is coming to an end. All right. Julia, thank you. 
Julia Borston. I don't know how this all shakes out. I don't think anybody knows, Karen, but it is clear that it, yeah. they'll figure it out. Guess. It'll, they'll figure it out and the movies yeah. will go to streaming because that is where the premium is right now. Right. I think I think I'd be really interested, actually, in the backdrop of how this came to be a public spat. Mm. It is my strong suspicion that they really wanted to settle. This doesn't do anything good for either of their reputations to have this public fight like this. I think it's probably going to end up if you see how Netflix model is when they do a deal with Shonda Rhimes, they pay an enormous amount up front and that's it. They own it. And I wouldn't be surprised if they saw, if we see a, a change in how talent is paid as well, big money up front, you don't own anything, it's very clear. Yeah. That wouldn't surprise me if that's how this shakes out. I would think that that'd sort of be better for talent in terms of, <laughs> in terms of the value of money and being able to Less invest risk. it up front, right? Um, Dan, what do you, what's your take on this whole thing? My take is that Black Widow chose violence. I mean, like, literally, that, this is like a pretty aggressive move. I think it probably has something to do with the fact that this was her last movie with Marvel. I don't think that any of those people who hadn't been killed, sorry for the spoiler alert and endgame here, people, um, would be suing the, 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 the studio like that because these have been amazingly lucrative things. But you can empathize with her a little bit. This was her kind of solo act um, here. I, I think it does change the dynamic for talent going forward. Uh, like you said, Mel, I don't think any of us know what's going on. But I just heard that report from um, Sarah Eisen earlier today that Kyrie Irving came out with a, a statement about Nike's um, Kyrie Nines, calling them garbage. You know, So I guess we live in a world right now where some of these big stars can really flex the way they want. They can speak directly to the people, their fans, and they have a lot more say in which you know, they're, they're going to do business with these sorts of big brands anyway. Yep. Coming up, the Robin Hood reality check, the stock falling in its market debut. Is this a name you should own? We'll break that down with our traders. Plus, you'll hear from one of the company's earliest investors, Tim Draper. Plus, Pinterest is plunging the stock falling hard in the after hours on earnings. We're breaking down the results next. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back. We are watching shares of Pinterest plunging in the after hours on earnings. Let's get back to Julia Borson with the details. Julia. Well, Melissa, Pinterest may have beaten expectations on the top and bottom line, growing revenue 125 percent. But those shares are plummeting down nearly 
18% right now on user growth that not just fell short of estimates, but actually a user number that fell between the first and second quarter. The company was expected to add 4 million monthly active users between the first and second quarter to end with 482 million. But instead, the company actually lost 24 million monthly active users, ending with 454 million. And while third quarter revenue guidance was in line with expectations, the company warned that headwinds around those user numbers continue into Q3, saying that from July 1st through the 27th, that was Tuesday, U.S. monthly active users declined 7%, while global users grew 5%, saying, quote, the evolution of the COVID-19 pandemic and related restrictions remain unknown, and we were not providing guidance on Q3 monthly active users given our lack of visibility into certain key drivers of engagement. Now, the company did say on the earnings call, uh, CEO Ben Silberman, saying that mobile users are still much more engaged and that there is strong engagement around e-commerce in particular, trying to reassure investors that their view of the long-term opportunity to grow Pinterest user base is unchanged from what they believed before the pandemic. Melissa? All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borson, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people turned to Pinterest because they were looking for things like masks, which, which we largely don't need anymore. Guy, people are outside now, so they're not locked in, updating their Pinterest page, as, as you have done da- recently, daily. probably, daily. Um, should we be shocked that there is a slowdown? Well, the market's clearly shocked in terms of this move, and it's not coincidental, I don't think, that the stock topped out around 89.90 in February when you got peak news in terms of vaccines. All right, let's just talk about this quickly, because the quarter, I thought, was really good. I mean, Tim can talk about ARPUs all you want, but ARPUs at buck 32, Street was at 117. International is where you got to look. That's where most of the users are, 36 cents, Street was at 32 cents. All good numbers. People are very myopic in user growth. That's what Julia was just talking about. $57 was the low, basically, in mid-May. That's probably where it's going to find a bottom, I would think, tomorrow on monster volume. I think it's worth another look there. And shouldn't we be myopic on user growth as investors, Tim? I mean, if if this is a growth stock, that's what you want to see. You want to see the users go up. You want to see engagement increase. That's what you're paying for now. You, you do, but you want to see monetization. I mean, I think on the other side, the monetization was strong. And, you know, you've got revenues up over 100 percent. And I think, it, again, let, let's look at the second quarter and the third quarter. They're not helping themselves today um, by backing off third quarter guide. And, and I think, you know, once again, it's just another one of these companies. Do you really think that the, the World War Pinterest, um, yes, they had a particular focus in the last 15 months of COVID, um, but there's no question that the service in a world where we're all talking about e-commerce trends that are not going to reverse, um, like well-positioned company, not cheap. Um, the monetization trends, I think, are fine. Guy's right. 80% of the business is international. Um, they've got LATAM monetization that's at least part of the future here. Um, I'm, you know, I, I don't own it. Um, I think it's expensive, but um, I'm not surprised to see the response here. But it doesn't mean that the company's any different today than it was yesterday. Karen, quick on pins. Uh, you know, I don't think the lack of guidance is is as big a deal as the market seems to think. It was just really expensive going in for that same, you know, uh, online media play. Facebook is so much cheaper by uh, uh, even after today's move in Pinterest. All right. Up next, the stock story of the day. Robinhood falling in its big market debut. We'll break down the action when the company's earliest investors, Tim Draper, fast money's back in two. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called 
writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to Fast Money. The Robinhood IPO delivering losses in its public debut shares the online brokerage falling more than 8% from its IPO price. CNBC's Leslie Picker joins us with the details. Hey, Les. Hey, Melissa. That decline comes after Robinhood priced its shares at the low end of the range. So by most measures, a pretty disappointing debut thanks to lukewarm investor sentiment, both from the institutional and the retail side, which includes its user base. Now, Robinhood broke into the mainstream this year amid the meme stock mania surrounding GameStop and AMC, but it also drew in a fair share of controversy. If you recall the apex when CEO Vlad Tenev was hauled in front of Congress, well, at least virtually, to discuss the company's decision to halt trading in certain names. Now, that notoriety didn't stop more users from signing up, with Robinhood nearly doubling its net cumulative funded account since just December. That kind of growth, plus the Robinhood brand in the retail trading space, is the bulk of the bull case. But the bear case, which really took center stage today, encompasses the multitude of regulation and litigation risks and the likelihood that its revenue declines as the popularity of trading things like Dogecoin, for example, fades. Volume today, massive, Melissa, with more than 100 million shares trading hands. That's nearly twice the offering size. Pretty remarkable on the volume standpoint. Maybe not so surprising considering the retail investors got their hands on, on a big portion of this compared to other exactly. IPOs. Yeah. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker. Um, Dan Nathan, do you think this lackluster debut is any sort of a verdict on, you know, the future of this retail investor boom on Robinhood and its ability to continue the way it is in terms of the concentration of revenues and payment for order flow, for instance? Yeah, I think concentration of revenues, payment for order flow, but then also crypto. And we know that those Q1 results that we saw, that disproportionate amount of Dogecoin trading, I mean, those are not things that I think you're going to want to bank on um, anytime soon. I guess the, the, the thing that I struggle with this company is that you know, what exactly did they innovate on? It Was it just this the democratization of uh, trading tools? Because they're all out there, that sort of thing. So when I looked at that S1, and we talked about it on the show a little bit, I just thought the average size of the accounts and the, and the sort of trading that they're doing, it's not likely to be the sort of thing that I think is able to build on. So they're going uh, to have to offer a lot more services um, and, and grow with these clients if those clients' balances do grow. So to me, I, is it a referendum on maybe what people think about their near-term opportunity, yeah, um, that could change pretty quickly. But it's just not, for me, even off uh, down 10% from the uh, listing price. I mean, in terms of what they revolutionized, what they did revolutionize was that they brought the other trading platforms down to $0 commissions. I mean, that was revolutionary. At this point in time, when most of the trading platforms have matched that proposition, though, Guy, is there anything else that's revolutionary about Robinhood, in your, your opinion? Dan just said it. I mean, the name is revolutionary. I mean, you know, the way... Listen, it's not mainstream Wall Street, right? It's a complete 2021 thing, and they got the whole WSB Reddit crowd behind them. But, you know, you t- what's that thing? Diamond hands when apparently you hold something you don't let go. Well, when this stock opened around noon or so, traded 40 bucks ish 20 minutes later, literally, it was trading 33. Not a lot of diamond hands there. That's as poor a first half hour, 45 minutes as you're going to see. So are they revolutionary in some aspects? Yes, but in terms of what they provide... 
Not at all entirely. And I think, you know, Danny Moses called me before. You know Danny. He said that this was now, I think, the worst performing IPO of its size since MF Global. That's 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 pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Let's uh, get to early Robinhood investor Tim Draper, founder and managing partner at Draper Associates. Tim, great to see you again. Yeah, great. Great to talk with you. I don't get to see you, but great to talk to you, <laughs> Melissa. <Great. laughs> um, I just have to ask you, uh, did you sell any of your Robinhood shares today or do you intend to? Not in a share. Not a single not share. A share. No plans and, to do and so. I love that I'm on a show called Fast Money because I'm the slowest money there is. <laughs> I, I made my investment in Robinhood eight years ago and still uh, still holding on and um, very excited about what these two guys have done and what they're doing for society. I mean, they got all these retail investors involved in the stock market. The stock market drives all of that incredible value. It drives creativity. Mm -hmm. It gets people fired up. It gets them all um, on board to, sure. to build progress for humanity. I mean, this is amazing. We, we, I, I'm so excited. We, and, we yeah, CNBC. I'm on, baby. We at CNBC always like to see more people involved in the stock market. That's for sure, Tim. The more, the merrier, um, we think. Um, but in terms of Robinhood's growth, I mean, Robinhood really caught lightning in a bottle this year. We had the pandemic. We had people with stimulus checks. We had people at home. We had people facing financial hardship, looking for other ways to earn money. All of this contributed to the massive growth that we saw in accounts and in the activity of trading. Why should we believe that that is at all sustainable going forward? I think once people get the bug and they want to be investors, um, I think they want to stick with it. They, it's a great way to put money to work. Uh, you know, people go to, go to casinos and they, every dollar they put in, they lose about five cents every minute or two. Um, but in the stock market, every year, they generally, um, on, on the whole, they grow 15% a year. And that's been true for 100 years. So, um, so I think there. This is a very positive thing for more people to get involved. And whether it was the pandemic or whether it was just Robinhood making mm -hmm. it free or giving sh fractional shares, um, whatever it was, it has brought more people into the investment um, business. And I, I think that's only a positive. Aren't you worried about the concentration of revenues coming from payment for order flow? I mean, what is certain here is that payment for order flow, even though it has existed for a very long time, it is uh, something that, that many of the other online brokers also uh, collect. But for Robinhood, as a concentration of revenue, it is much, much greater. Are you concerned that there's going to be any sort of regulatory action which will endanger that business model? I doubt that there will, um, because I think that... Um, that the investors, the customers of Robinhood want zero uh, fees. They want zero uh, commission. And, uh, and if, if somehow that revenue went away, Robinhood would have to charge a commission. Um, and, and, uh, and saying it's concentrated, that makes no sense. That's like saying, you know, Facebook is a trillion dollar business and it's all built on advertising. I mean, I think you've got a very the uh, very well balanced. But what if we said Facebook's, what if we said that Facebook's advertising came from four customers? Because that's basically Robinhood. I mean, the payment for order flows from four firms. So that is a concentration within a concentration of revenue. It's a, from a concentrated number of players. And sure, so but their, their need will not go away. 
um, and they will constant they will need that information and and to run their own businesses. I think that they're uh, they're locked in, and if uh, and I think it's um, it's fantastic that we've got all these new new people out there investing. Yep, we do too. Tim, thanks so much for your thoughts. We appreciate it. Great, my pleasure to be on the show. Tim Draper, Draper Associates. What do we think? What what is interesting with this whole phenomenon? known as the Reddit phenomenon, is that Robinhood has enabled these traders to come into the market, traders who've then opened their eyes to see how the system is set up, and now they don't like payment for order flow. And now, now they're talking on Reddit about going to brokers that don't rely on payment for order flow as much, Tim. I mean, it's sort of an, it's an interesting full circle that we're, we're witnessing. Yeah, and if you think about the again the profitability of the firm and where where they're going to be tomorrow, uh, you know, look, I, I think the fact that they have a very strong brand and a very loyal following. Look, if you're any bank or brokerage or asset manager, that's critical. Uh, so they've built a lot of that. Um, I think you know Dan brings up a great point in terms of just how influential or how much size. Uh, and how much monetization per per account. But I, I think most importantly, you know, where this company is going to also see some issues, at some point, this is not going to be a bull market. At some point, there's a lot of folks who are, are investing not on fundamentals uh, and are fun, you know, investing mostly on, you know, call it, uh, you know, a community of mindset that isn't always the best way to do it. And I think that's going to be something that hurts this firm. It's been a very sweet spot. Um, I think they built a brand. They clearly have a business that's sustainable, but they're going to be competing with some of the most sophisticated folks in the world. And, I, you know, that's not going to be easy. Karen, what do you think of Robin Hood? Well, I don't own it. Um, I, all the, I mean, I think the questions that I would really want to have asked were the ones exactly that you asked about that concentration of payment for order flow and the concentration of the number of, of the, the four buyers. It's not so much that I think the four buyers aren't going to want to buy it. It's is there a regulatory environment out there coming soon that doesn't let them buy it? But I had one other question I wonder, is the Robinhood community, are there enough of them that are like, we love Robinhood, we'll pay a commission, that's fine, if they need to, to keep it, at, you know, because Robinhood would need that revenue that way. Hmm. I don't know, maybe they, you know, GameStop still trades at a whatever, 100 and whatever it is today, 180. I don't think it's really worth that, but, you know, people do. I don't know if, if they would be helped out like that. I just, I don't get it. I don't get the concentration, the payment for order flow. That's problematic. I think it's so tied to the market. The cryptocurrency exposure seems also, it's turbocharged to the market, which is Tim's point. It's, you yeah. know, in a down market, probably won't trade well. All right, we've got a huge interview coming your way at the top of the hour. Kramer is sitting down with Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev. It's coming up on Mad Money, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Up next. One stock surging almost 50 percent, 50 percent today after updating its revenue guidance will bring you that under the radar name when Fast Money returns. We're watching shares of Amazon down by 6.9 percent just off of after our session lows after the company's uh, sales miss in the second quarter and weak third quarter guide. The conference call is underway. New CEO Andy Jassy has not yet made any comments. We're monitoring this. We'll bring you all the headlines. Meantime, coming up, this stock topping the tape in today's session after upping its revenue guidance by nearly 50 percent. We'll bring you that name. And later, AMD continues its post earnings high. The stock hitting new records today and option traders are betting on even more gains ahead. We'll break down that action when Fast Money comes right back.
Welcome back to Fast Money Shares of Lending Club. Topping the tape today, the stock soaring nearly 50% after the company updated its full-year revenue guidance by, get this, 45%. This comes after Lending Club reported its most profitable quarter in its history before the bell. The stock has just one buy rating on the street. Karen, you flagged this move. Um, what's, what's your take on this? I was just astounded. I mean, it's not like this was like, what was that company? King Digital that made Candy Crush and they probably upped their revenues, I don't know, 50, 100% in one year. This is a company that makes thousands of little loans and packages them and sells them. And the idea that their revenue guidance is up 45% plus is just astounding. I don't know what that says about their customer base or the consumer in general. It does tell me that there is a thirst for the securities that they create with those loans, which I think is mostly hedge funds. Their credit quality was actually pretty good, um, so no defaults yet. But it's just astounding, that kind of move on a company that does this. I I don't think I've seen anything like it. Wedbush is saying that they beat on everything that was good. High origination fees, higher margins at the bank, lower than anticipated operating costs, Tim. Um, Should we be skeptical? No, I, I think what happened here is, first of all, they had very much uh, tempered guidance over the last couple of quarters. They bought a bank lender last year, and they had guided that this wasn't really going to reap benefits. They turned it around a lot faster. In fact, they, they, they brought the expectations forward 18 months uh, aggressively, and, and that it, you know, it's free cash flow positive. They're also ahead of a lot of these neo banks, and they also have a significant loan, uh, excuse me, a loss to carry forward that's going to enhance profitability. So again, I think this is a combination of a company that's moving faster on a core asset and and bank lending, and and that expectations were very, very soft. The the folks that I've talked to that own the stock think there's more to go. All right. Coming up, a chip rip shares of AMD surging again today, what we spotted in the options market that could point to even more gains ahead. We're breaking down that action when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of AMD jumping out to a brand new all-time high today, crossing 100 bucks a share for the first time. The big move setting off a blizzard of bullish activity in the options market. Let's get to Mike Coe to break down this action. Mike, what'd you see? Yeah, so we saw quite a lot, actually. AMD traded more than four times its average daily total options volume. And in fact, in terms of just contracts traded, it was the most active single stock option traded today. We saw calls outpacing puts by more than Two to one following those good results off of earnings and a big rally that the stock has seen since that time. The most active options that expire next week, because we have a number that we're trading that expire tomorrow, were the August 6 weekly 105 straight calls. Over 49,000 of those traded for an average of $2.15 apiece. Buyers of those short-dated calls are obviously betting that the rally could continue and you could see the stock above 107 and change by a week from tomorrow. That's uh, quite a move. In just about a week, Guy. Um, earlier today, Guy, on Twitter, you added me about AMD. You said <laughs> AMD just saying, because you've been on this. Oh, I added you, so. so I did. What do they call that thing? The, the at. at sign, right? And I put yeah. you. Yeah, because you took great glee the other day when we were having an Intel conversation, apparently, that we're not supposed to have. And Intel was trading lower. And you said, when AMD went lower on the back of it, you said, what do you think here? You've liked AMD. And I said, this, I remember this, what I said. I said, Lisa Sue will come on tomorrow on the, the Squawk Box and assuage the concerns of investors. Look at this. Magically, what happens today. Now, I will say this. Traded 160-something million shares, typically trades 44 times normal volume. Mm. I'm inclined to take profits uh, on a day like today, Melissa Lee. Dan? 
Yeah, I mean, listen, it's, it's a tale of two cities in the semiconductor industry um, right now. If you look at the SMH, I mean, that looks like a really constructive chart. It looks about to break out, and we know the winners there. It's NVIDIA, it's AMD are kind of leading the charge, but then TSM and Intel have really lagged. I like TSM here, but the SMH looks poised for a breakout. Um, Tim, you, you tend to like the more value sort of side of the chip trade here. Which, which has not worked as well as certainly the, on, the, on the, the Intel side. Look, and some of the China's problems, as we talked about, I think are going to help TSM just in terms of where it sits on the charts. I, I think Intel is deep value because I think while this may take a couple of years, we got the updates on Foundry. Uh, I think this is a stock that there's really zero expectation in the short term. AMD, I think price to success, but kudos to guys been all over this one. Nailed it. Um, Karen, is Intel too much too deep of a deep value stock for you? Yeah, it is. I'd rather buy it higher, I think, after we see some signs of a turnaround there. And so far, not so much. Curious, Mike, is the activity that you saw in, um, in AMD, is it specific to AMD or did you see more bullish activity in some of the other ones, namely in NVIDIA? Yeah, I mean, so basically, I mean, sort of to Dan's point, I mean, where the bullish activity lies is in the premium chip companies, the ones that are basically selling the top line products. I think that's really where Intel fell down. And that's something I think management currently recognizes. If you take a look at SMH, if you take a look at Taiwan Semi, which was one of the other names that he mentioned, both of those two actually did see uh, more bullish activity than bearish today. And NVIDIA has sort of consistently seen that. And I think that obviously is coming on the heels of very good demand for their most recent slate of GPUs. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. We'll see you tomorrow for Options Action. That's the full show tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, we've got your final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. We didn't really talk markets today, but it was a bit of a growth rally, a reflation rally, a rally where banks, which always lag a few weeks after their earnings, are starting to rally Citibank, Money Center Bank. Karen Feinerman. Yes, if those Pinterest users are not spending as much time there, maybe they're going out and maybe they're going to Ulta. That's my final trade. Dan Nathan. Yeah, so Chinese Internet's been a big story over the last few weeks. The FXI, the iShares, large cap ETF, 25% of that is Alibaba, Metuan, and Tencent, down 25%. I think you start to leg into that one here. Mm. Guy Dami. Dog days of summer, Mel. Does Joey Gallo put the Yankees over the top? In your opinion, Mel. Totally. See, it's unbelievable. Your baseball knowledge, it's just incredible. Halliburton. It comes out H-A-L, folks. Thanks for watching Fast to See Back Here Tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.